and welcome to this CL Insights podcast with me, Helen Brooks, Business Development Manager here at CL. I'm really pleased to bring you this next podcast in our uh, series podcast focusing on farmer adoption of innovation. And this is actually a part two podcast uh, with Ben Williams, the sustainability manager from Glambia. Um, for those of you who've been following the series, you'll know that I've already uh, done one pod- podcast with Ben where we really looked at some of the uh, the projects that um, him and the team at Glambia have been involved in, in terms of uh, driving farmer adoption and also farmer change. Um, but in this uh, podcast, uh, we're going to be looking um, more at the educational side um, of farmer adoption. Uh, some of the research that's happened um, that Ben's been involved in, in terms of that um, sort of application and use of education uh, within change, but also thinking um, about the need and the want for change um, and actually how those two things um, really do need to come together to make sure that the adoption and uh, sort of innovation are taken up for the long term, not just for the for the short term. Um, and thinking again about those methods um, and challenges that really will drive adoption. So Ben, can you give us an overview um, of some of those educational styles um, that farmers tend to fall into um, and the research that you've been involved with um, to sort of look at those and, and how those can be applied? If I pick up on the education piece, did a, a piece of research at AHDB prior to moving over that looked at sort of how farmers like to learn. And I mentioned that education is the complexity of it is, is often underestimated. And obviously the more wicked your problem, the more complex the education has to be. We assume that farmers love to jump in both feet first and and learn in the field, so to speak, or certainly incredibly practical sort of demonstrations. And whilst there's an element of that that is uh, true, it's not their preferred learning style. And and if you look at this from sort of a, a learning journey where there are segments of the journey we all have to go on to, some of them we really love and that's where we start our journey. Some of them we'll tolerate and, and we can move through with relative ease, but there are then intrinsically barriers. So if you looked at the research, there were 400 industry professionals um, uh, surveyed through what was called the Honey and Mumford Learning Styles um, questionnaire, and that assigned them into their preferences without them really knowing that's what was going on, that that was the outcome. Um, 300 farmers across multiple sectors and then, uh, well, 303 actually, and then 100 industry professionals, vets, nutritionists, um, researchers as well. And actually, unsurprisingly, the assumption that you know we need to have all of these face-to-face events and they're very practical and they're on farm of which they are incredibly important they aren't actually the preferred learning style of the vast majority of farmers what they want are these case studies of relevance that are delivered to them in a format that allows them to have a bit of time to realize what are the risks and ambiguities i am worried about the aim then is to make sure that the practical event that follows really does expose what those risks and ambiguities are and how the solution meets the reduction of that risk and ambiguity. The next stage is to provide data on that because the farmer still won't be convinced. In fact, nobody will be convinced. If you think about, you know, the process of buying a car or various other bits, we go through this on a daily basis. You know, we all like the test drive bit, but that's probably not where we start as our preference. And as you go around this this sort of process, data becomes very important as the next blocker. But there's one that's intrinsically sort of wicked, and that is this need to be able to sort of role play the situation and everything you've learned into your future. And because we're so guilty, I think, uh, at time of, of sort of not being able to see the wood for the trees and taking a step back, we need that additional actor or stakeholder to come in and actually survey vets in particular they call it the activist style the ability to sort of interpret role play future think 
they are really high in this as a preference and as a skill set and nutritionists to a certain degree as well. And, and they're there as an asset to support farmers. So I think there's two bits from there. You, a, you have to have them as part of this learning element or this educational lever, this process. And they play a very clearly defined role. They allow us to sort of close the loop on, you know, somebody's had a good idea. I've seen it in action. I've seen the data and how it applies to me. Now I need to think about how I get it into my business. What is the long term effects? Where is this going? That is the sort of role that they play. And that's why they're so key on the farm. So the findings weren't a massive shock, to be honest with you, but they were at the same time because we'd been doing it slightly wrong for a long time. Yeah, and it's really it's really key that all of these um, sort of models and, and theories do actually come to come together and, and do all form part of the jigsaw puzzle. There is like with everything, there's no silver bullet, but actually by looking at all these different elements, you can create that strategy in terms of what you were saying about case studies. Um, which is really interesting. I think case studies, obviously the, the research shows that they're very important, but actually the, the delivery method of those yeah. case studies or of anything actually is really important. So whereas one farmer might like a case study that's written down or appears in a farmer's journal or a farmer publication, another would actually like that case study to be brought to life in a face-to-face in -face, um, capability or yeah. even through a digital method. So actually those the channels of delivery or the methods of delivery are as important as the strategy that's, that sits behind it. Yeah, and I think we have to recognise that A, they're changing, obviously, as we see a generational shift within agriculture. Um, but again, I, I've been guilty of this in a, in a previous, previous life. I was uh, worked in, in agricultural education. We assume that the next generation is incredibly digitally savvy and that is their preferred methodology. It's not. There are certain things within society that are hardwired in. We shouldn't assume that actually just because you're young and you're the next generation and all of these phrases we attach to various groups of farmers um, that they want to see it on a computer screen. For plenty of them, they do just want to they do want to sit and, and watch a video. For some of them, they do like to pick up something and physically read it. And for others, actually, it's about that face to face communication because they need to go deeper and deeper faster and they need that support at a faster rate. Yeah, no, completely agree. So from from obviously all the work that you've done with the, the face to face with the, with the farmers and the other stakeholders, being they nutritionists or vets or, or whoever, have you had any sort of uh, positive or negative responses from the approach that you've that you've taken? Yeah, we we have very definitely. Um, when, I, when I started in this job very quickly, sort of the aim was to speak to the, the major sort of actors in, in our supply chain. And maybe I'm guilty of, of, of sort of not heeding my own advice, but I came from a farming advisory background. Um, I came from an educational background where I was supporting the next generation of farmers, and I was very much biased towards supporting the farmer. I wanted to make sure as much as possible they get a fair shout that, you know, that, that the fundamental foundation of our supply chain is, is supported. Um, and so that's where I went first. And I had some very frank conversations with some farmers. They've always been very honest, um, I have to say, in feedback. And it was very rare that I met a farmer that didn't recognise the need to change from a sustainability point of view. And, and actually change is something that farmers farmers do on a regular, regular basis at multiple scales. So the need for change wasn't something that, that, that many turned around and went, oh, no, that's ridiculous. And where there were challenging conversations, it was obviously phrased around prices and, and sort of markets and various other bits and pieces. So it was understandable. Importantly, though, the number of people that wanted to change was the, the thing that sort of concerned me the most. And it's a funny little sort of um, you know point of difference, but the point of difference between need and want is is obviously action. You know, it's, it's people are engaged and, and are, are progressing. The number of people that now want to change 
has grown. So not massively, I'll be honest with you. You know, we've, we've got about 5% of our GB supply chain that have switched to soya free that we know of. I also suspect there are a few more that are filtering through that we haven't quite captured yet. They've been doing this for a long time for a different reason, and we need to get onto those and, and A, see if we can build them into case studies and, and make sure we're rewarding them properly. But I think I had, I had a really great chat with a farmer and he said the reason he keeps turning up <laughs> to places where we talk and have these conversations is rather than just demanding straight away, right, this is this is the cost of doing business and you've got to do it now. We recognised there were challenges, some of them really simple that were, were quick fixes, but some of them inherently challenging. And rather than just demanding you do it and you'll pay for it, which is I think sometimes how it comes across, even if that's not how it's intended, to I recognise this is going to be challenging and actually we will take as joined up an approach as we can do. We'll hold our hand up when we make a mistake and we've we've made a few. Um, that was a different dialogue or dynamic that had been had been put to the farmers and it has changed relationships and, and growth and change is still slow, but it's faster than it was. And obviously you can then see that as a, as a sort of snowballing effect, hopefully. You know, it's, it's about reaching critical mass. And once you do that at pace, then the rest seems to take care of itself. So, yeah, it's been really positive, both on an interpersonal level in terms of actually being able to see some KPIs that we can tick off. We're actually seeing a needle move. And, and so often you sort of see a twitch in a needle as a few innovators do something and then this stagnant stall. We've actually seen a very slow creep of a needle and that that for the first time in I think in my career actually has made me feel successful. Not as successful as I could have been and, and we are still making mistakes, but you know it's 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 nice, you know, a lot of people across the supply chain are feeling success. Yeah. And that and that's it, isn't it? It's it's not always about uh, the data. We want the data to, to move in the right way. We want yeah. the figures to move in yeah. the right way. But actually, we've got to make, you know, farmers, people feel like they are successful, but they've got to yeah. be happy in doing it. We can't inject fear. We can't inject any of that. We've got to make this a, a positive point um, to move forward. And 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 I think that that, you know, your your point on want versus need is absolutely spot on. Just because there's a yeah. need doesn't mean you want to do it. And actually, do you think that your approach has, has driven that sort of autonomous approach and, and bespoke nature? You know, you were saying a, a little bit earlier that farmers have to sort of internalize things and mm -hmm. see the future, how this can be implemented in the future within their business um, and that makes it that makes it bespoke each farmer has that bespoke vision so do you think the yeah. approach has helped with that bespoke nature nature and and providing that autonomy for them to to do it i think if i'm being a hundred percent honest and absolutely 100 percent honest it's early days in being able to give something really concrete to that but we are seeing little pops of that autonomy and that that realization that actually there's there's a mechanism and a process here by which I can realize as a farmer that I have a challenge and actually if I've got an inkling of a solution I can come to somebody who will help build in that reset piece or at least link you know this overall strategy of being greener more sustainable dairy to a series of actions so we, we've had some great examples where farmers have come to me and said um, I want to build a hydroelectric plant because I realize there's a wasted untapped resource here um, I want to intercrop um, beans with maize and I've been speaking to my agronomist about this and, and to be fair to the agronomist and, and all involved without naming companies they'll, they'll figure out who they are again some it, meeting some incredible actors who 
are either linked to the farmer, are the farmer, or, or even are completely removed, who have a good idea, but actually they need that framework to help drive change. They've come out of the woodwork on recognising that that maybe there's something here, and we've just got a few isolated examples, but maybe this is sort of just me being all gushy and positive, but it feels like the start of something bigger. And I think the next few years will tell. You know, we, we could with you know geopolitics and prices and various other bits and pieces we could see some stalls here and and I might have to eat my words but the fact that we've got a mechanism where we have levers that we can move backwards and forwards they don't have to be rammed in full drive all the time means I feel a bit more comfortable that we can we can keep up pace by changing how much pressure we apply to certain parts of of, of the process and certainly with so. reset the idea is that you you use all of the levers but exactly yes. as you say, depending on the group of farmers, call them a segment, call them a group, um, yeah. you know, you might use one lever more than the other, but the key is to use them all, but in varying degrees. Um, and that's Absolutely. something that you build up through knowing that audience. Um, yeah. So in terms of um, the farming audience, have there yeah. been any unexpected barriers that you've had to hurdle over? Yeah, there, there, always, there always have been, um, and they come in the sort of the strangest way. So the, the soy one, um, is a great example. You know, we we went at this sort of, you know, um, perhaps a bit naively saying, right, we're going to ban soy. And of course, the more you scratch into soy as a, an ingredient, you realise that I mentioned earlier, you've got soy meal, you've got soy hulls, you've got soy oil. And soy oil wasn't really a problem for us. Soy meal, there are viable alternatives, although the markets are still challenging and there's there's price differentials. The one that snuck up on us, partly because of geopolitics, was actually soy hulls. They're pretty cheap they're a great source of fiber they tend to come attached in contracts with buying the soy meal um, and there are almost no alternatives to them within the dairy sector and, and the real the real barrier to sort of shift was was these soy hulls so actually what we had to do is we, we'd had this concept where the diets were pretty much the same price so i wasn't going to have to pay a huge amount here and, and being really frank we thought we'd get away as a company quite lightly with you know, some some support investment through, um, you know, uh, reducing risk and ambiguity. Actually, when we sat down and, and we did the maths properly with the feed companies, we realised there was a fairly major economic challenge we hadn't considered and we had to take that approach. And and that then comes across as, oh, you've just thrown money at it. But that that wasn't what we did. You know, the, the aim was to not sort of, you know, try and influence the markets with additional payment um, for fear of messing them up. But that was a challenge we had to get to. Um, and then I think, you know, we have milk pools in Wales, Northern Ireland, and obviously we we sort of deal with the Republic of Ireland in, in sort of a, a slightly third party way in that we process curd. Each of those is different culturally. You know, the reset that you can apply in GB is not the same as Northern Ireland. You can throw money at a problem in Northern Ireland and that's that's not that's that's not how it works. There's I think there's a deeper need to understand the longer term risk actually there. Um, and, and it's not through lack of innovation or, or a lack of demand to change. It's, dare I say, it's it's once bitten twice shy. You know, there's there's, there's been a lot of cultural shock within that industry. Um, and so you have to change your reset. You can't think, and it goes back to what we were saying before about the right models for the right audience. And to assume a farmer is a farmer, I suppose probably even at a, even at a national level is, is a challenge, but there really are remarkable differences. And so that that's come as a little bit, a little bit of a shock. I think we suspected it, but 
quite how entrenched and different they were um, and the approach is, is, has been interesting. You know, we've done a lot more or we, we're having to do a lot more around the tools and technology themselves and the education within Northern Ireland without that sounding patronising to make sure the risk and ambiguity is, is thoroughly understood before we can even think about actually looking at the, the social and economic models. So we're almost sort of back to the drawing board and, and adding a whole other year onto our progress in order to make sure we do it right. So I think there's also a piece here, if, if, if you throw a good idea out, you have to do it right the first time or, or accept that you, you've lost you've lost people. So I think that that element of test and trial is really important then for, for yeah. the strategy that you're the, you're implementing. And I think from a from a you know, put a social science hat on, that is the way that it's done. It's test and trial, because I think we all know that yeah. everybody what comes out of our mouth is not always the action that we actually deliver um, and it. that that can that's shown through throughout the whole of the general public um, not yeah. just farmers and so actually so that that test and trial sort of approach is is quite important to what you're uh, what you're achieving yeah. and I think even down to our methodology I mean we've, we've talked about reset because they're you know in our first early steps in sustainability that is the model that we've fallen back on because it's it's fit the the, the specific projects we wanted to try but I think to sort of boil down behavioural change to a single model would also then not do it justice. You know, there are some relatively simple projects that actually don't need an entire reset method. And there are some really known, well-known nudge motivators or behavioural insight elements that you can utilise. Equally, you know, to assume that reset can solve the most wicked of problems in isolation is also you know, not, not fair to suggest, although it, it's shown to do some really good stuff if used well. So I think just putting your faith in a single tool in the same way that just assuming all axes are the same would also be, um, you know, not something we'd, we'd want to do. And longer term, I think we actually need probably a bit of support, you know, within our business. But as an industry, we need more support on when do we apply certain methodologies? What case studies have genuinely worked? Probably a bit of research into them. But there needs to be some funding for that as well. Not not just the research, but you know, if, if we're going to throw money through through innovation funding and various other bits and pieces to drive that missing 40 percent, and actually it's probably a bit more looking at the CL reports of of the innovations to get us to net zero, we can't then not fund adoption. And both knowledge exchange services in in um, in in the UK um, and probably beyond, and that knowledge transfer system is, in my opinion, grossly underfunded absolutely grossly underfunded and it's it's probably one of our greatest weaknesses if you look at the US extension services and if you look at a lot of the European funding and various other bits huge huge focus on knowledge transfer and knowledge dissemination and they are at least a year or two ahead you know the Eureka project in Europe really looked at what is best practice in behavioral change and, and dissemination and we are nowhere near being there no, I'd, I'd completely agree with you in, in terms of that. So if we're thinking about this from sort of the whole industry point of view, what do you think are some of those key industry steps um, to drive farmer uptake um, or adoption of sort of innovative ideas, innovative services to drive us towards sustainability? I think I think there's a few sort of key messages I've, I've picked up over the time that will sort of will really, really help. Um, and, and it's just my opinion and the bits that we've seen but the first one is don't assume that just because you've built something that's good farmers will will take that up there, there will need to be some consideration to who your audience actually is and and as that audience grows what will you have to do 
in order to be able to sort of drive that uptake. And that's both at, as at the innovator level and that broader innovation infrastructure that sits you know from from the funders through to the knowledge transfer agents as well that that has to be collaborative collaborative and it has to be tied in you know that those conversations and those pipelines have to be much better than they are i think wherever you're sort of looking to assume that that your innovation is going to drive efficiency and cost saving you've got to bear in mind and ask yourself the question does the skill set to actually use that exist within my audience and we go back to the education piece education is is fundamentally challenging to do at the best of times with any audience but when your audience is both technically brilliant at actually what they do you know our farmers are technically very good their products are incredibly good there is a bridge between those that we forget about and that's the operational efficiency between being technically a great farmer and delivering a great product and that's what efficiency is it's the ability to link those two together there is no fundamental skill set taught in this country within agriculture to link them. It's a lacking skill set. So that's not there. And obviously, as we move towards more data and, and, and more um, more digital efficiency, that skill set becomes more of a concern. But also, I think we have to start to recognise there's some data fatigue. You know, anything that generates data and expects the farmer to have the skill set and the time to use it because it doesn't really add any value is a real challenge. So from an innovation point of view that's yeah that's that's my thought and then i suppose at the top end of the supply chain the you know the the people who are hoping these innovations are going to sort of ease away our scope three emissions within our food again it's the same message just because it's there it, it's not going to be magically used and just because it's set as a this is what i expect you can't necessarily get there without perverse consequences and and, and there has to be investment and, and I perhaps cite the the UK pig sector back in the 90s with the the end of, of farrowing cages absolutely it was the right thing to do for animal welfare absolutely it was the right thing to do for reputation of the sector but the impact of the sector is still felt and you could argue that maybe unlike um, caged hens actually where I think a lot was learnt within the UK um, a, it wasn't easy. B, there were a huge number of actors behind the scene who are pulling on all of these levers frantically to make sure the industry didn't fall. But if it's not done right, it can be catastrophic. And we do have to weigh up that need for sustainable production with actual food on plates in homes in the UK and, and globally, definitely globally. Yeah, absolutely agree. Ben, that's been an absolutely brilliant conversation. I think it's safe to say me and you could talk about this for, for another hour or so, so quite week, easily, yeah. but we'll or even a week, yeah. Um, but just some real key points that I've um I've picked up from that that conversation. And I think the the one you made quite early on was don't underestimate the time that it takes to do this this type of work. And yeah. it does. The planning um is absolutely consistent. And I think somebody um somebody once told me that actually when you're looking at this type of area, quite often we do 20% planning and 80% delivery. And actually when when we're looking to change behavior we're looking to edit behavior or add behavior um what you're looking at is probably a 50 percent um at the minimum planning and, and strategy yeah. development for about 50 percent um delivery because you've got to get that strategy absolutely correct the point about multiple audiences and multiple actors in terms of stakeholder mapping again just because 
our end audience or our core audience is the farmer. Actually, we can't underestimate how many layers to that onion that there is to help us to to nudge to nudge that that along. Um, and the use of reset is a fantastic it's a fantastic model um, and one that you know um, I use regularly and, and happy to talk to to anybody about. But also yeah. just thinking about those other models that that are available and, and how we can make that com combination of models to to make it fit for what whatever's going on. Um, I just want to highlight as well. Ben has actually developed a um, a blog for us on that preferred learning styles that he mentioned. So there's that will be launched soon, um, and there'll be more details um, in there. Um, another key point was the want and need element, um, and I think so so often we talk about you know what do farmers need, um, what does the industry need, but actually that want has got to drive it. And you said it brilliantly. You know, want and need equals action. If we yeah. just need it, it doesn't mean that there's going to be action in there. Um, so just thinking about that audience, thinking about how we can drive uptake, but also ensure that that support is there. This isn't just saying, thank you very much, Mr. Farmer, for using something new and off you go. Sustained support is needed for sustained change. And that I think yeah. is a is a is a key thought um, moving on. So yeah, Ben, I really want to thank you um, for taking the time um, to do the podcast. Um, everybody who's listening, just remember to follow CL on Twitter and LinkedIn or check out our website, which is cielivestock.co.uk uh, for more insights um, and more insights on the farmer adoption um, campaign at the moment. Um, and we'll be releasing these over the coming weeks. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.